Hello, I'm Cece Stinton. And I'm Jessie Anand. And this is episode two of Performance in Progress, a podcast from Spectra Ensemble. This week, we'll be discussing the operatic canon, which in one sense, in the sense of history and criticism, is perhaps a collection of highly respected masterpieces or classics in the operatic repertoire, against which all other contributions to the genre tend to be measured. Yeah, so I guess it's no surprise that we've been feeling a little bit trepidatious about recording this episode. Um, The canon arises not just out of discourse, but also out of programming decisions. Um, And I suppose as a producer, that's how I tend to think about it most. Um, It's cemented by the programming choices made by large opera houses where we often find that the same very small handful of well-known works is appearing in the repertoire again and again and again. And I guess this idea of canon crops up even in the context of auditions, you know? So I might be sitting in an audition room and hear um, 20 renditions of a Puccini aria in the same day. Um, And there are many things that are very useful, I suppose, about um, putting on operas that a lot of singers already have under their belts. Um, But Spectra aims to define itself more against the canon um, and to put on those things which are not usually given a platform by larger houses, which aren't in uh, the discourse as much. Uh, And most of my work in opera is in fact with Spectra. So I suppose I don't have that much experience directly of working with the operatic canon. But Cece, I think you do. Well, my first ever job in opera, working as an assistant director, was actually on a production of Katya Kabanova, which is a Czech opera by the composer Janáček. And interestingly, while Janáček operas these days are quite often performed, and indeed perhaps have become canonic, This is actually a relatively recent development and it was only really in the sort of 60s where um, the conductor Charles Macheras really sort of championed Janáček's music and brought it to non-Czech audiences. So my first encounter with opera was a sort of recent canonic encounter, but I have also um, worked as an assistant and associate director on now two productions of Verdi's La Traviata, which I think is a good candidate for our canonic opera collection. Um, one production at Opera Holland Park, where I worked with um, some young artists, uh, Roger Gaetanu's production, and then another production at the Royal Opera House, which was a revival, um, Richard Eyre's production. And that was a, a fascinating exercise in understanding the different ways in which the same piece can be brought to life um, multiple times. Okay, and now that you've done... Um to Traviatas as an assistant director. Are you yearning to do your own? Honestly, the answer to that question, Jessie, is no, I'm not. I'm actually really not. Not least because I've been lucky enough to get to know some of Verdi's lesser known operas. He wrote about 28. And they're also musically and dramatically very tight, very exciting, brilliantly paced and really good. So a couple of years ago, I assisted on a production of Aroldo, which is also a kind of 1850s opera written by Verdi with the librettist Piave. 
it's about a Saxon knight coming home from a crusade. The world isn't quite as he left it before. Um, his lady love has been playing away. There's amazing tension. There are brilliant arias. Um, there's great, brilliant sort of climaxes for the chorus. So that really made me think that actually, you know, Praviata is only the tip of the iceberg. It gets so much exposure. Um, but I think I'd really prefer to delve into some of these other quality works. Mm. I mean, I suppose that um, a large part of the reason why we choose to do what we do with Spectra is that it's interesting and it would be boring to keep doing the same old things again and again. Um, but I suppose there are people who would say, ah, you know, isn't it a bit of a cop out to do works which nobody's staged in a really long time you've got no competitors there's nothing to compare yourselves to so you're able to kind of stand alone in a field uh, do you have any comeback to that well I suppose that question is irrelevant if one really commits to contributing meaningfully to the sort of opera ecology of this country and committing to um, giving audiences the opportunity to widen their horizons. Um, but also, it's interesting that you mentioned this question of competitiveness. I mean, since when is staging opera a sort of competitive sport, I suppose? Um, it's not. It's, it's a constant exploration. So I suppose that's my, that's my retort, Jessie. Okay. Not a competitive sport, although often quite a physical workout, I would say. <laughs> I love that. <laughs> <laughs> um, I suppose also my interests, whilst, you know, I love 19th century repertoire, my interest with Spectra and our work together, Jesse, has really kind of focused in on a particular moment of the early 20th century that we've identified as being exciting. Not least because the early 20th century sees this explosion in more collaborative practices, perhaps between um, artists from different disciplines contributing to opera. Um, and actually our um, guest on the podcast this week um, is also someone deeply invested in opera and music of the 20th century. So um, I, I'm thrilled to introduce Jonathan Cross, who is Professor of Musicology at the University of Oxford. Um, Jonathan's research and broadcasting focuses on issues of 20th century and contemporary music, both theory and analysis. And I've had the pleasure and luck of encountering Jonathan's work for the first time as an undergraduate studying music. And I was certainly not asleep in his lectures, but on the front row, edge of my seat. Um, and Jonathan has a very particular significance for Spectra because it was in his lectures on Viennese modernism that I first came across this colour opera by the painter Kandinsky, which Spectra then went on to stage. And in fact, it was the staging which really initiated Spectra's work and helped us build the foundation on which we were able to create our company. Mm. And Jonathan is now one of our trustees. Um, so we are constantly um, picking his brain and asking for his expertise um, on programming and the like. But this week, we were asking him about what the operatic canon is, what it does, um, and how we as opera makers in the 21st century can work both with it and against it. 
So this question of the of the canon, which I mean, canons go back a long way, you know, uh, patristic texts or whatever, the canon of literature of the Christian faith. But in terms of what we're talking about, it, it emerged in the 19th century, and it's an extraordinarily powerful, one might say, dangerous controlling force. Who controls it? It's very hard to hard to say. It's partly commercial imperative in the, in the 19th century. Mm. But the repertoire and the spaces uh, you know, really need to be opened up and, and, and questions. And actually, the, the, the situation that we find ourselves in at the moment is uh, the ideal opportunity to do that, where one can't go back into these, these sacred spaces with their, with, their, with their conventions. We have to find other, other spaces and other ways of doing it, which I see as a really exciting opportunity for opening up art to very, very different audiences who are intimidated by by that frame, uh, whether it's an aristocratic frame or whether you see it indeed as a white frame, which it could, you know, which it is, uh, restricting the kind of repertoire that is that is presented. And you look at the the listings for, for opera houses all over the world; it's a very very narrow repertoire on the whole that's being presented over and over and over again. Yeah, again, a commercial imperative. No opera house can be without Mozart, Verdi, Puccini. Um, but I think. You know, great that those composers are. There's more to life than Mozart, Verdi, and Puccini, in my. Mm. Oh, absolutely. Although, I, I mean, if we wanted, I'm sure we could delve into the question of, you know, why those things are commercial imperatives. Why are they so popular? And mm. what is the enduring draw? Is it is it just kind of a self perpetuating cycle that the more these things are put on, the more that they're known titles, the more people who are maybe not that imaginative in their um, opera going habits would say, ah, yes, I, I should go to that. But it is partly the power of this, this canon that uh, it ascribes value to these things and that very problematic word greatness. Mm. What, what is greatness? Who says what is, is, is great? And you know, how, how do we recognize it when we, when we see it or hear it? And these things mm. become sedimented they become mm. you know, and that, that is really very dangerous um and because but they're also once they're there they're very dif difficult to to dismiss mm. and to question um but there are ways of doing it we've been talking about finding different spaces you know new directorial approaches to it that that open up and question um but of course are also on the other hand resisted by more conservative audiences for whom the entire package not just what is happening on the stage <laughs> remains uh let's say a privilege they're not prepared to relinquish mm, i'm interested in what you're saying jonathan um about sort of staging and directorial approaches being a way of um shining a new kind of light on the canon because i've been thinking quite a lot about the way in which the development of an operatic canon has somehow been enabled by more sort of um critical or deconstructive stagings because at the end of the day you're still programming um say uh la boheme just with this different kind of sort of visual spatial approach and to what extent is that actually preventing uh new contemporary operas from being performed i mean is there a sense that perhaps staging is somehow secretly being kind of complicit um, in inculcating the canon as we know it in opera? Yeah, absolutely. That's a really interesting question. And I think 
uh, in many respects, you're right. It's all very well saying, okay, well, we, you know, we're going to do uh, um, Mozart magic flute, but we're going to do it in a critical way. Well, you know, what is it's very important that we do that. Um, but what's what's being changed there? Well, I think partly it's the context. I'm thinking back to um, you know, my earlier uh, operatic experiences. I'm so old. I remember the the powerhouse at English National Opera in the <laughs> 1980s, uh, when I was a student in London, I used to queue up every morning to get the cheap student tickets. But you know, that, for me, that was a really exciting and formative experience. This was when uh, Peter Jonas was the intendant at, at ENO, and Mark Elder was the music director, and David Patney was the director of productions. And there were so many exciting things going on there that, that, that they brought together. They, they questioned the canon in the sense that they found new ways, challenging ways of presenting familiar material but they also filled the uh, the space with with uh, newer work or unusual work i remember seeing uh, ligeti's le grand macabre there for the first time the first british performance of zimmermann's diesel daten um and, and very exciting rethinking of well not exactly core and then maybe they are core repertoire now pieces like vorjax rusalka busoni's mm. uh, dr faustus all these sorts of pieces that they brought Brought to brought to light. So I think it's partly the context as well. It's not just another um, production of, of Mozart or Verdi, but placing it within a within a mm -hmm. series that, that that brings new meaning to it and questions its its place. I think mm -hmm. if you see companies that are just doing the, the safe repertoire, then that's when one really begins to to worry in a sense about mm. how it's renewing itself, how it's finding new audiences, how it's speaking to a more uh, diverse public and so on. Mm. I mean, I suppose realistically from a, from a commercial point of view, uh, it can be very important for companies to have a sort of mixed programming model and to have surefire hits on which they will make a decent profit precisely in order that they can then pay out a fairly hefty commissioning fee um, for something new perhaps right yeah. so the two things work um, in concert with each other I suppose this has just made me think of institutions like um, well ENO at the moment but also the Kormische Oper in Berlin where sort of operetta and opera and musicals are really um, encompassed within one building and there are these kind of different slightly different audiences who come to see these slightly different productions and yet they're coming to the same institution the same building and therefore there is scope for them to have an encounter with um information about something slightly different and because they're already sort of initiated and comfortable perhaps in that building they might feel slightly more able to sort of try something they might not have thought was necessarily for them initially um well i'm a great fan of english national opera i know they've been going through difficult times and it seems to be a, a, a you know favorite pastime of some critics to knock english national opera at every opportunity um but actually some of the most exciting work i've seen in recent years has been under their umbrella but maybe not in the in the coliseum but in other places so i know we all went to see uh, the Philip Benables piece, um, uh, 448 Psychosis, which was done uh, in Hammersmith. Mm. I mean, that's a brilliant new opera. I mean, it was challenging in all sorts of new ways, based on a fabulous play by Sarah Kane, uh, absolutely contemporary in that sense, um, but in a different space and therefore a very different audience, a much more diverse audience that you would normally find in the main opera houses, um, much younger, 
Um, and that for me was really telling. Yeah, I mean, they, I was up there in the cheap seats at the top, and people were, you know, kind of facebooking and so on through the through the performance, which might upset certain more traditional opera goers. It actually didn't bother me as long as it wasn't preventing me from seeing what was going on the stage. I thought, fine, you know, it's it's a different audience behaving in a different way. And it was the same with the spectral production of uh, Trimonisha last year at the Arcola, a very different kind of space, a much less formal space, a very cramped space, certainly wouldn't work under COVID conditions. Um, but by putting on a different repertoire, you invite in a very, very different audience. It was fabulous seeing people that never experienced opera before and making assumptions there but also you know a younger audience an ethically much more diverse audience people for once seeing themselves represented in an opera in a way that that they don't it just goes to show that if you if you make take radical decisions about doing you know uh, unusual or off, not often performed uh, works in new spaces you will get new audiences and people will have a rich experience as a result do you think do you think there are ways in which um those running these institutions can or programming how can we make contemporary opera feel available to everyone um are there bar are there also barriers there um i'm just thinking about sort of really different and distinctive musical languages that might be very unfamiliar um to people yeah. sort of are there barriers which aren't necessarily the sort of um, imposing building of the 19th century opera house there um, and and what might those be I suppose yeah well that's that's a very big question isn't it and as somebody who's passionate about the the new and believes in it uh, it's it's a, it's always a struggle you know you're encouraging people to take a risk and I would say well you know you might not like it but give it a go you know you might you might like it you know I don't like everything I go to see but yeah. I, you know I passionately believe in the new because it is of the now and it, 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 is, it is saying something about who we are in the world today and it, it is questioning it's opening our eyes it's challenging it's often uncomfortable um, why just go to the opera to see things that are, are familiar? You don't do that with when you're reading novels. You don't do that uh, with film. Um, people are quite happy to wander around, you know, the, the, the most kind of uh, crazy exhibitions that take modern, but they don't take the same risk with music. Well, why not? I think that's really interesting. Well, partly because you're trapped. It's a long experience. If you don't like, if, if you find a piece of art revolting, you can walk away and you can, you can look mm. at the next one. Whereas if you're stuck in a seat... <laughs> in a theatre for three hours and you hate it uh, it's, a, it's a slightly different experience um, but uh, you know I, I do believe uh, that it's important you know uh, I'm not necessarily kind of card carrying kind of Boulez follower blow up the opera houses I mean he was you know he was an absolute modernist he believed that his role was constantly to, to, to look forward to do new things you don't you don't look back at least uh, as a composer that wasn't necessarily the case as a, as a conductor for him. Um, but I think also doing these things in, in, in new and different spaces uh, is really important and finding new ways of engaging an audience. And I think at the moment we really are thinking quite rapidly about technology. So what, is, what does online opera look like, for instance? It's not just you know, we've consoled ourselves with watching streamings the last few months of past fine performances and that's all well and good, but that's not going to sustain us uh, forever but I think there's some really interesting projects popping up uh, one of my mm. great lockdown discoveries has been the American composer singer video artist 
Pamela Z. Well, I suppose she's Pamela Z. I've never heard her name said out loud. She's American, so it'd be Pamela Z. Um, brilliant singer, fabulous artist, real creative imagination. I, I discovered a, a work of hers called Baggage Allowance, which exists in multiple forms. It's a, it's a theatre performance, it's an installation, and it's also a website. Well, only the website is accessible at the moment. But there's a degree of liveness there in that, that you have to interact with it. You find your, a bit like a video game, you know, you find your own route uh, through yeah. this thing. Um, and it's uh, so you become part of making this work with her, um, and uh, yeah, that's really exciting. You know, uh, so it's using contemporary technology to to make to make something new, and it's 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 uh, musically really very arresting, but it draws you in through the, the through the narrative. It is. I would call it opera because it's about storytelling. It's about the relationship between music and text and visual image and mm. theatre um, and so on. And it, but it's also making very powerful points about, you know, baggage as a metaphor, crossing borders, mm. uh, contemporary issues to do with uh, migration and so on and so forth, um, dealing with, with contemporary themes. I think that's probably what gets my goat is so-called contemporary opera that is really not contemporary in any meaningful sense it's in a it's in a, a rather comfortable staid old mm. musical language with a few little piquant moments of modernism to keep the bourgeoisie on their toes um, but also its subject matter is so kind of old and often irrelevant mm. you know to be contemporary, you have to engage with the now. You know, even if you're dealing with, with an old opera, you have to recognise that all art is political. It is saying something about who we are mm. in the society in which it lives. And if it really isn't engaging with that theatrically, musically, then, well, it's not for me. <laughs> I do think that some audiences, um, and not, not just sort of conservative audiences, uh, quite like and perhaps need a bit of escapism in what they uh what they go and see and hear and and can't quite bring themselves to encounter face on something that is too relevant or too uh, on the nose or too uh, too easy to recognize too close to their contemporary lives um and so i guess i'm particularly interested in um new work which brings very uh, contemporary musical language and very contemporary aesthetics to perhaps much older stories um, which which can be made to feel as though they still have something to say about um, about our world today so but uh, Cece and I saw the um, the new production of Bert Whistle's The Mask of Orpheus at the Coliseum last year which is a work very close to my heart yeah, that was another of the great new works I saw the Colosseum in the in the 1980s. That was a product yeah. of that that era there uh, as well, which yeah. is such a powerful piece musically. It's very challenging music in the sense that it's 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 full on, um, uh, but you know it takes you on this incredible mm. uh, incredible journey, and it's retelling that old operatic story, the beginnings of opera in Orpheus. You know mm. this character, if he lived at all, was lived. 3,000 years ago, what's, what's Orpheus got to do with us now? But Orpheus becomes in that piece a kind of modern uh, figure. 
Uh, and it, it's more about the you know, modern psychology and, and so on and so forth and about loss mm. and mourning uh, and so on and so forth. So taking these mythical stories and remaking them for now. Absolutely. Mm. I agree with you, Jesse, that mm. that can be done. Um, and what was interesting about that piece, it had a very particular genesis with a very particular team that presented it as a kind of modern Greek myth in the in the 1980s. And when it was redone, uh, last year, it was a very, very different take on it. Um, but uh, the, the you know the old farts didn't like it very much. Oh, it wasn't like it was in the eighties. You know they don't understand what you know what the piece was about. Well, I don't care. You know I think actually it was remaking it for the for the twenty first century. Mm. These most extraordinary costumes and uh, it was a particular reading. Well, fine, you know, but it seemed to speak to a very different audience you know the audience of the instagram age rather than mm. the audience of uh, you know well when it was first printed of course it was kind of pre-internet age so very mm. different um but it was very hard for me because i, I know that music inside out right yeah. so uh, it, it'd be very it was very interesting seeing the reaction of people that didn't know burt whistle's music didn't know what mm. to expect musically but still responded in a very positive way to the whole experience mm. and this combination of you know music and totally incomprehensible text. I mean, Act 3 is sung mainly in Orphic, you know, this language that Peter Zanofiev invented, you know, so you're not supposed to follow what's what's going on. Um, this thing of um, actually sort of giving up on sort of logical, sensical language as we know it in opera, there's something very exciting, I think, about letting go of trying to constantly cling on to text. I actually really disliked opera until I was a late teenager. Um, or in my early 20s, I think I was an undergrad when I really fell in love with opera. And probably sitting in one of your lectures, Jonathan. Um, but it was this moment of allowing myself to not constantly need to understand it word for word, particularly if it was being sung in Czech or um, Russian or German, sort of giving oneself license to immerse oneself, to live inside the music, the movement, the staging, the language, not as, um, as, as specific words, but as something that is working within this world. And so what, what's happening with the sort of the Orphic language you were talking about in that production of The Mask is that that is being enacted for you already. Um, and there's something about that which I found extremely exciting. I think it's also, it's, A, it's this immersive experience. So back to this idea of, you know, Wagner, an idea of a Gesamtkunstwerk, where all the elements, I mean, that's the, the joy for me of opera. It brings so many different experiences together in one space, but also your expectation that, you know, it's not going to reveal all its mysteries, <laughs> all its joys, all its richness in one go. I mean, if it does, then it's probably a, a you know, a less than satisfying experience. If you don't understand it first time around, well, great listen to it again <laughs> my question it. is how do we how do we communicate to audiences that that is okay and that they should allow themselves to feel confused and not beat themselves up for it i suppose if you're you've got people literally singing in a completely different language and there's no surtitling then you know that gives license doesn't it but if that's not the case then how do you prevent it from making them just feel stupid or alienated? Is there something we can do in the way we present opera? And I suppose what's interesting about what you and Jonathan both just said about this, this thing of, um, you know, you should, you know, a, a piece that's really worth its salt perhaps makes you want 
to come back and experience it multiple times but then of course there are barriers there anyway because of all kinds of you know obviously financial barriers but also um you know modern life doesn't necessarily lend itself to audiences being able to sort of take that time out but i do think it's such an exciting idea of how we can sort of promote this this sense of um it being completely okay not to get it first time or indeed to actually take pleasure in the continued process of getting it whatever that means or feeling it or um inhabiting uh, a sort of a challenging piece mm. we forget that these experiences live with us i mean i'm i'm very lucky that i have the opportunity to write reviews for opera magazine which i used to subscribe to being the nerdy teenager i was when i was a teenager so it's lovely oh. <laughs> be writing for this esteemed uh, rag um, but uh, the nice thing about writing for that because it's a monthly publication and not you know a, a daily whatever where you've got to turn your copy in overnight is that you do have time to, to reflect on your experience and it's amazing how much things you know coalesce a day or two after the sounds the images the ideas are circulating around your head and when you're there in the theatre, you're bombarded with it. You don't have time necessarily to, mm. to, to process it. It's only later you think, ah, oh, what an exciting idea. I understand now you know, why that was there and you know, where that came from and how that relates. So mm. you know, if you have the space to, to think mm. and reflect. Let's say uh, you didn't have a month to submit your review, Jonathan. Let's say you, um, you're working for a paper which required you to turn it in overnight pretty much and you know lots of um producers of opera really just want the reviews out as quickly as possible um what are the dangers of too sort of speedy a reaction and can a sort of immediately negative reaction from the press ruin a piece's chances of being revived or even having a long run in the first place yeah really interesting question um Hans Keller always used to say that he had a number of what he called phony professions and the, the, the music critic was one of those. <laughs> <laughs> Didn't believe in the, the role of the, the music critic. Um, yeah, and of course there, there are all sorts of invisible frames even for, for critics. So you know, mm. where is that review being published? If you're writing for Review in the Guardian, you have one kind of readership. If you're writing a review in the Telegraph, let's say, it's a very different kind of readership and partly critics will be writing for those readerships and will take a take a particular position um uh, i've learned an awful lot from uh, a brilliant critic and now a very close friend fiona maddox who writes for the observer I, a i just love the way that she writes i mean she's such a beautiful writer always with you know a touch of humor but i remember years ago her saying to me well you know what right do i have to slam a production i couldn't do what they do i'm there for two and a half hours they've just spent the last six months preparing for this production i just come in and say oh well you knew you missed your top c and you know actor three on the left wasn't in the right place you know you, you've got to take it as a whole you have a responsibility as a critic to try and understand what the creative team is doing i mean they are one hopes genuine in their in their collective enterprise to, to to read a piece of course if there are things that don't work and things that are, are wrong you, you you need to you to call that out but for the most part i think you know cynical critics who go in just to sort of nitpick everything they find can be very damaging it can be damaging mm. to the careers of the artists it can be if it's a new work it can be it can be damaging to the 
the, the future of that work. Now, that's not to suspend one's, uh, suspend one's kind of critical um, sensibilities, but on the, on the other hand, as I say, you also have a responsibility as a, as a critic. Mm. Well, I think, I think it's really fascinating how our discussion has really kind of, um, one of the invisible threads running through our discussion about the canon, to me feels like it's a discussion of media. Um, and maybe I'm on my PhD thesis soapbox here, but I suppose, you know, reviews, criticism, it's dialogue with um, institutions and that kind of feedback loop, what comes back again, um, audiences knowledge and familiarity with the piece being bound up with um, the availability of printed sheet music, but also early sound recording, I suppose. and um, We've also been talking about the digital and the possibilities of digital to enable the reinventing and reimagining of opera as we know it. Um, so I think that's something I will take away with me and mull. Jesse's earlier point as well about what we can do to uh, bring uh, new or nervous uh, audiences to, to new work. Um, and yeah, you know, that is a really interesting challenge, and it responds to what you just said, Cece, about you know the use of technology and so on. And I don't think we should ever assume that you know a work speaks for itself. It doesn't. You know, it's always it's always in a context. It's always surrounded by other things. So anything that we can do to uh, to, to to support that, I think, is really important. So whether it's you know as simple as a sort of pre-performance talk, or whether it's podcasts, or whether it's printed material, um, and so on and so forth. I mean, I've been very fortunate to be involved in a number of projects over recent years that have attempted to do that um, in one way or another. And it's kind of not patronising the audience, but actually, you find even sophisticated London audiences. Uh, don't, in inverted commas, know as much as uh, they feel they need in order to engage with this material. So one great success a few years ago was this um, year-long project at the South Bank Centre, um, the brainchild of Gillian Moore there, called uh, The Rest is Noise, and it took, it took its title from the Alex Ross book, which was a sort of survey of 20th century music. And so uh, month by month, decade by decade, the music of the 20th century was presented by a range of different resident ensembles there. Um, but it was surrounded by this extraordinary uh, superstructure of talks and videos and lectures, not just by, you know, tedious musicologists, but by uh, authors and politicians and economists and so on and so forth, really trying to contextualise uh, the music in a way that we often do with literature or film, but don't often, so often do with, 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 with music. And it really, A, it generated a new audience and B, it took the audience with it. So even the music from the beginning of the century, which I guess is now more familiar, but some people still find very challenging, people came in by that and then it took them right through to the, through to the, the present. Uh, essentially was sort of holding people by the hand and leading them through. Well, you know, these aren't just, you know, nasty noises for the sake of nasty noises. What is the context? You know, where did this particular figure come from just after the Second World War? Why were they trying to reinvent a musical language given the experiences that they'd had and so on and so forth? And, and it, starts, it starts to make more sense then, I think. So new work, difficult work, challenging work, but surround it 
with the in put it in the right kind of context and present mm. it in the right kind of way and it becomes accessible it becomes it becomes meaningful for a much wider audience than, than normally experiences these things in yeah, Covent Garden or wherever. Mm. Mm. I have a slightly more frivolous question which is um, what out of, sort of new pieces that you've seen in the past 10 years uh, will audiences still be seeing and hearing in a hundred years time? Can, can we tell? Is it possible? I don't think so. Um, I don't know is the answer to that question. I remember um, that was all you, know, you kind of get to ask that on a number of occasions. It's sort of annoying question people like to ask living composers. Ah, oh, well, will your music be heard in a hundred years' time? Yeah. <laughs> answer always is, well, you know, what's the weather going to be like next week? I don't know. Do you? Yeah. <laughs> um, and I think you know things will. It depends on the context. You know what will people need? I mean, we don't know what's going to be performed. You know, in six months' time, and we're all rapidly rethinking that. That's why I think it's mm. tragic, though, the ages that we've been living through for so many people. It also presents us with some really exciting opportunities. We're mm. not going to be able to do the big canonical works. We're going to have to think in creative ways, find new spaces, new ways of, of, of delivering. And what was canonic may may not be for very much longer. I mean, actually, a relatively small number of 20th century operas are in constantly in the repertoire. Wozzeck, um Rake's Progress, um, mainly because that, I, sh I shouldn't say this is a Stravinsky scholar, should I? But, you know, it's for most people, it just moats up with wrong notes, so that's fine. <laughs> I think it's a much more sophisticated piece than that. <laughs> uh, Britain operas, yes. um, uh, Strauss operas. I mean, Richard Strauss, uh, think of others. I mean, in terms of the 21st century, I mean, the, the, the obvious candidate is George Benjamin's um, Written on Skin, which has had hundreds, well, certainly over 100 performances around the world. That's an extraordinary phenomenon. Now, why that piece? Why has that piece been picked up by opera houses and audiences around the world? What, what is that saying um, that so, so many other uh, contemporary pieces aren't saying? Uh, yeah, I can't guess a rhetorical question because in many ways, you know, I mean, I'm a great, I'm mean, a huge admirer of of Benjamin and his his music and his work and that creative team that he works with, uh, his librettist um, uh, Martin Crimp that he's produced three works with now, uh, Katie Mitchell, the, the director, Vicky Mortimer, the designer. I mean, they work together in a really powerful way, and in a sense, it's not just. Benjamin, it's, it's, it's the work that all of them have produced that is very, very striking and very, very powerful. But one might say, cynically, that Written on Skin is actually rather an old-fashioned piece, powerful though the music is. It does, you know, it does what Pelias did at the end of the 19th century with Debussy. It's sort of, the, you know, a medieval tale placed in a modern modern context, even the way the music works, essentially, with the, with the voices riding on top of the, mm. of the orchestra and a kind of, um, uh, you know, summarizing grossly but a uh, mm. kind of parlando a kind of restative and then you have these mm. orchestral interludes and so on it's not really pushing at the frontiers in the way that 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 really challenging new work is doing that, that that's not to you know to decry mm. it at all but that may be one of the reasons why a work like that works in conventional spaces mm. um, and can find it and can find an audience and uh, other pieces don't mm. um, but yeah that's just an immediate reaction. Mm, that's fascinating. I mean, I suppose there's a there's also that relationship you flag up, the collaborative relationship, and that sort of building 
a production from the ground up as a whole, um, rather than the sort of uh, more conventional um, way of going about things. That is to say a composer and the brettist collaborating first and designer director coming in later. And perhaps there is therefore embedded a kind of a distinctive relationship between music text staging but i wonder to what extent um those operas have perhaps reached possibly 21st century canonic status almost on the way there um, because of this kind of uh interesting way of working or novel way of working um, yeah i'm sure that's i'm sure that's right hmm well um i think probably it's time that we wrapped up this episode Jonathan, thank you so much for your brilliant insights into our discussion today. It just feels like an endless topic and that there are just still so many things to consider and debate. And of course, listeners, if you feel that you have some comments you'd like to add, then um, please do get in touch with us um, or leave your comments um via our social media channels because i know jesse and i would really love to continue this debate um through your feedback as well yeah absolutely um our next episode on an as yet undecided topic keeping you on your toes um will be coming next month so please do join us then Before we leave you listeners, we'd just like to clarify that the production of 448 Psychosis that Jonathan was talking about earlier was in fact a co-commission between the Royal Opera House and the Guildhall School of Music and Drama, um, not English National Opera as um, suggested. Uh, although of course that's not to say that ENO hasn't done some fantastic pieces outside the Coliseum. Um, we had a great date last year to called Bunyan, um, at which they distributed, was it candy canes or? Percy pigs, Jesse. Percy pigs, that's it. Percy pigs. <laughs> they were so good. Um, and I know I really loved the uh, ENO at the gate, uh, Effigies of Wickedness too. So we must pencil in another ENO date, maybe for Drive and Live. <laughs> Drive and Live Labo and see you there, Jesse.